Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark 2, starting in verse 1. And when he, he being Jesus, and when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And And when they had made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question the things, these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. I love this story um, in the Gospels. It's recorded um, in Matthew's Gospel, in Mark here, and then then in Luke. So it's recorded in three out of the four Gospels. And and I love this story because it reminds me of my childhood. There's a lot of evidence, a lot of scholars believe um, that the kid being lowered to the roof is a kid. That, uh, that the four people who bring him are also kids. These are little boys. And the reason we believe that or think that um, is because when Jesus addresses him, he addresses him in the Greek as technon, like little boy, son is how it's translated in our English Standard Version that we use here at Flourishing Grace. Right? Son, little boy, li- little, little male child, right? Technon is, is how he is, is addressed. And so if you kind of give yourself over to it, you kind of see this picture, and it takes me back to my childhood. My dad, when I was a kid, my dad bought a, bought a farm. Um, he wasn't a farmer. Uh, he just bought a farm so that we'd have a place to kind of go and play and hang out and have fun. And so we would go and we'd play in the woods and we would uh, man, just build forts and, and explore and camp out and do all these crazy fun things. We'd shoot guns and chase animals and all kinds of stuff. And I'd take my friends over there and um, he, even eventually he, took, he would take his grandkids. And the farm was close to a pretty famous place, so close, to, close to a place called Hannibal, Missouri. And Hannibal is the scene, it's the setting of one of the greatest stories ever told, the story of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And so it was kind of this sweet, sweet space in my childhood because I love that story. My parents would read me that story, and I read that book, and I watched the movie again and again and again and again. Tom and Huck, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I, I don't know who played Becky Thatcher, but man, I had a crush on her when I was a kid. I watched that movie so many times. I love Becky Thatcher. I, I wanted to be... Tom Sawyer, that's who I wanted to be, uh, just floating down the Mississippi. We'd go sit on the Mississippi and watch the barges go by and this, had this whole thing. And so uh, for me, when I read this story, I'm kind of taken back to that. Because that's kind of what I see happening 
in the story. You've got Jesus, who if you've been with us, right, Austin last week kind of took us into the story where Jesus is, is demonstrating his authority over certain things. As king of all, Jesus has demonstrated his authority over demons. Right? He's cast out demons. He's demonstrated his authority over kind of temporary ailments and illnesses. Um, like Peter's mother-in-law, she, she had a fever and Jesus cured her fever. Um, but he also uncurable diseases, like leprosy. Jesus touched the leper and he's cured from this incurable disease. It's amazing. And not only that, but the authority of which he speaks, not like the scribes, not like the Pharisees, but he speaks with this unique and special authority. And therefore, these massive crowds have gathered to see what he's going to do next and to hear what he's going to say next, right? So much so that he can't stay in the cities. He can't stay in the towns. He's forced out into what Mark records as the desolate places. He's forced out into the country, out into the surrounding regions where these massive crowds could gather. And we know from reading the Gospels, there's times where Jesus is speaking to over 10,000 people. Right? These are massive crowds that have gathered. And so Jesus, after being out in the desolate places for some days, he goes back to Capernaum, which is kind of, it's, a, it's a, one of the largest cities on the Sea of Galilee. And it's Jesus' home base in this time in, in life of his ministry. And he's in a home. It's not his home. Um, we don't know whose home it is. A lot of people assume it's uh, Peter mother, Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law's home. But we don't really know. We, we're not told. But he's in a home in Capernaum. And people hear Jesus is back in town, and he's at this house, and they just go in, and like all of a sudden, Jesus begins to teach again in this house, and it's cramped. It's not a, you know, this, this wouldn't be a big, massive house. It'd be a cramped, tiny space, and they're packed in, and they're leaning in the doors, and they're leaning in the windows, and they're multiple rows deep on the outside of the house. So you can kind of picture this scene where it's just hushed. And everybody's straining to hear Jesus as he's projecting his voice for even the people on the outside of the house to hear. Like, this seems incredible. And these kids, these four little boys, bring their friend who's paralyzed. And we don't know why he's paralyzed. Maybe he's been paralyzed since birth. Maybe, he's been, maybe he had an accident as a kid. We don't know. But they bring their friend because they know that the guy in the house has the ability to cure diseases. And we don't know if Jesus ever cured a paralyzed person before, but who, who knows? Who cares? We just got to get our friend in the house. And they get to the house, and it's just crammed, and there's no way they're getting in there trying to push their way in. The adults are like, we're trying to listen here. Be quiet, kids. And they don't go home because this is like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Man, they're scrappy. They get up on the roof, which in first century Israel, right, it would have been a flat roof where they'd often, in the, kind of in the cool nights, they'd go up and sleep on the roof. They get up on the flat roof, and they're, they're walking around up there, and they're trying to figure out, all right, but Jesus, where is Jesus at in the, in the house? And all of a sudden, like Jesus is speaking, it's hushed, it's silence, everybody's straining to hear. And then dirt begins to like fall on people's heads. Like, what is going on? Is it like rodent infestation or bugs? Like what's, the dirt begins to fall on the people's heads in the room. And all of a sudden, a, a, little, a little hole of light appears, right? There's no electricity. This is first century Israel, right? A, a little beam of light breaks into the house. And it's like, what is going on? All of a sudden, like a kid's head pokes through. It's like, what is happening? And they begin to like clear more and more space out. And chunks are falling. Chunks of dirt are falling on the people in the room. And all of a sudden, they're shoving their friend down through the hole. And you know it's not a big hole. They're just like, get him in there somehow. Like, and people are just like, all right. They, but what do we do with this kid? I was they put him before Jesus. 
And you have Jesus finally, you kind of have the, kind of the breaking of the story. Jesus speaks. It says this, right? When he saw their scrappiness, yeah, not scrappiness, tenacity, their hustle, you guys are already yelling it at me, faith, when he saw their faith, he looked at the boys and they're, they're sticking their heads in the hole, they, he looks down at the kid who's laying on the mat, and he sees their faith, this faith that says, I've got to get in the room with Jesus. It's that level of faith. At all costs, I'm going to get in the room with him. That's faith, real faith. I know if I could just get in the room with him. When he sees their faith, he says, son, little boy, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Think about that for a second. Jesus just did something for that kid that nobody else could do for that kid. He is cured him. He has removed all of the sin. Every offense before God has been removed. That's not true of anybody else. Like this kid has a gift that has been given to him that's been given to nobody else at this point in time. All of his sins are forgiven. What Jesus is communicating is because of your faith, we're saved by grace through faith, right? This is not a result of work so that no one may boast this is the gift of God, Ephesians 2 tells us, right? Je Jesus cures him of his sin and removes it from him. There's no longer an offense between God and this kid. What Jesus is saying is, for all eternity, you, my little paralyzed friend, you're going to walk with me for all eternity. This is the greatest gift that Jesus could have possibly given this kid. But here's the question. Was it the gift that he wanted? Is it why he's there? Is it why they just destroyed somebody's house? No. No, they don't want that. That's not why they're there. They want their friend to be able to walk now, today. They, they want him to be cured. And so what's going on? Jesus knows that. Jesus knows what they want. So why does Jesus do what Jesus did? This brings me to kind of my first point. The first thing that if you're, if you're a note taker, the first thing I want you to know this morning is this, right? You and I, you and I have a greater disease. And what Jesus is declaring in that room is that this kid on the mat, this paralyzed boy, has a greater disease than paralysis. He's got a greater problem than paralysis. And you and I have the same disease. We have a greater problem in our life. You have a greater need than the ability to walk. You have a greater disease that is robbing you more than paralysis was robbing that boy. The greatest disease ever. It's hard for us to imagine something worse than paralysis. It's hard for me to imagine something worse than paralysis, right? My, my dad uh, died last year of a disease um, called cortal basal degeneration. I have no idea. I'm not a doctor, okay? It's, it's hard for me to even remember it, all right? Um, but what, essentially what it is, my dad was fine. Like everything in his body was totally fine. Like he could do anything that anybody else could do. No problem. Until one day his brain says, no, you can't. Like his body's fine, but his brain's like, no, you're not. 
And so all of a sudden, one day, like, he, his, he can't use his hand anymore. It's like, what the heck's going on? The doctors are baffled by this. They can't figure it out. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and he's like, my, my, everything else is fine. I don't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden, he can't use his arm anymore. It's like, what is happening? And the doctors kind of begin to have this, some theories, and they kind of know kind of what's going on. And all of a sudden, he can't use his mouth anymore, and he can't form words very well. He's fighting and struggling to communicate, and all of a sudden he can't use his other hand anymore, and then his other arm, and then his legs. And by, by, by the end, right, he's completely paralyzed. He can't move, and yet everything about him is fine. There's nothing wrong with him except for his brain is telling his body that everything doesn't work anymore. Listen to me. That's the worst way to die. It's awful. It's hard for me to imagine anything much hardly anything worse than that. Like, that's just the worst way to die. Like, this man who could do all the things can now do none of the things. He can't feed himself. He can't clothe himself. He can't talk. He can't, nothing. It's like, that. it's nuts. And all the time, people would be like, wait a second. He's always laughing, and he's always joyful. Like, what the heck, man? Like, you, you've been robbed of everything, and yet constantly... Constantly, my dad, even through slurred speech, is just cracking jokes to the very end. He is making fun of everybody in the room, including himself all the time. He's so funny and so full of joy, so sure, so steadfast. And people would say, man, how is that possible? And the reality is, is simply this. My dad, like that little boy on the mat, knew that he had a greater disease. Something far worse than cortical basal degeneration. And that he had been cured from the worst disease. He had been given the cure from the worst disease. And because, because he had been cured from the worst disease, there isn't, there's nothing else. There's nothing else that's going to get him down. There's nothing else that's going to, like, what more? I have the cure to the greatest disease ever. There's nothing more that's going to get me down. There's nothing more that you can take from me. I've been given the greatest cure from the greatest disease. And the greatest disease is not this slow, agonizing, temporary death like my dad experienced, but an eternal death, a separation from God. It's sin, a curse that has been part of our lives since nearly the beginning of time. Sin is the greatest disease, and it's robbing us from everything. It's destroying every area of our lives. And ultimately... It will, if not addressed by Jesus, it will destroy us for eternity. Our greatest human problem, your greatest human problem, and my greatest human problem is sin. And the second greatest human problem that we have is that we don't know how great this problem is. We have no idea. We have no idea. Nobody wants to talk about it. Preachers don't want to preach on it. Our, greatest, our second greatest human problem is that we have no idea that we have this disease. Like it's like a cancer growing inside of us, and yet it's undetected. It's unknown. We don't know how bad it is. We don't know what eternal separation from God, the one who sustains all life and brings every ounce of joy, how bad that is going to be. The great theologian John Owen, one of the greatest theologians ever, wrote, wrote the greatest work on sin ever called Overcoming Sin and Temptation. And I think every follower of Jesus... At some point in your life, you need to read uh, this work. I'm going to give you a few quotes from it this morning. He says this about sin. He says, when we realize 
a constant enemy of the soul abides within us. What diligence and watchfulness we should have. How woeful is the sloth and negligence then of so many who live blind and asleep to the reality of sin. This is us. It's you and me. Most of us in the room are living asleep to the reality of the greatest enemy of the soul that lives within us. There is an exceeding efficacy and power in the indwelling sin of believers. For it constantly inclines itself towards evil. We need to be awake then if our hearts would know the ways of God. Our enemy is not only upon us as it was with Samson, but it is also in us. We have this disease growing in us, constantly, constantly, constantly growing, getting bigger and bigger, controlling more areas of our lives and spreading throughout our lives. It is the greatest disease ever. And most of us don't even know it's there. He goes on, John Owen, the most famous quote from the book, he says this, he says, do you mortify? Do you kill? Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. It's killing us. Our greatest human problem is sin. It is the cause of all pain, all sorrow, and all destruction in our lives. It is the source of eternal death. And there's nothing that you or I can do to bring about its destruction. There's nothing we can do about it. Every human being who has ever lived has tried in some way to remove or fix sin, and not one has been successful in doing so. Every human being who's ever lived has, has identified this. I mean, I just, I just want to be a better person. I, I don't want to hurt people. I, I, I don't, don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to behave like this anymore. I don't want to speak like that towards my kids or speak like that towards my spouse or towards my friends. There's things in my life that I just wish were better. Every human being has identified at least some of the effects of sin. Every single one. And not one person ever has been able to actually cure the disease. You see the symptoms, and you can fight against the symptoms, but you've never been able to cure the disease. And what Jesus is declaring right here to this little kid on the map is that you have a greater disease, and only I have the cure for that. The problem is, most of us just want to ignore it. We just want to bury it, right? We have this kind of youth-obsessed culture. This kind of culture where we want to promote the best version of ourselves on social media and say, look at how, who, how great my life is. We don't want anybody to know that we have problems. We don't want anybody to know that we have flaws. We don't want anybody to know that even we have a disease or an illness. So even as a pastor, like so often I find out that somebody in our congregation has a, has a disease like well after they've like been to the hospital multiple times and I just like hear through about it through the grapevine. I'm like, why wouldn't you tell me? Like, why? I want to be there. I want to be near. Like, why wouldn't you say something, right? It's because we don't want anybody to know. And if we are so willing to oppress, to, sorry, to suppress these little diseases, these little flaws in our character, how much more are we suppressing our greatest disease? and all of the things that it brings into our lives. If you knew, if you knew how great the disease was, if you knew that, that, that your kids have that disease, right? You would be banging down the door of Lindsay's office or Josh Gardner's office saying, man, I got to get with you. Wait, we, need to, we need to talk. We need to figure out, man, I need to plan around my kids' spiritual life. And I want to I get them in the room with Jesus. We need to dig a hole through the roof and get them in there, right? You'd be screaming. I need more date nights. I need to sit down with my spouse. We need to talk about it. But it's not happening. 
It's not real. I don't want to think about my kid having the worst disease ever. Let's just forget about that. Let's not think about that. Let's just move on with life and get busy with all the things that we can get busy with so we can distract and divert our attention to something else. You have a disease that is incurable and it's worse than you know. And we need to be a people who awaken to this and live awakened to this. We can no longer live blind to sin. So what is the response of the people in the room, right? So Jesus looks at the boy, he says, man, your sins are forgiven, right? What does the people in the room do? Are they, this is like a huge party. Like, this is amazing. Do they celebrate? Do they, do they, throw, do they throw a party? Like, this is incredible. This is huge. This is amazing. Like, this is, this is the best day ever. Like, this is a, that's what I want too. Is that what they say? No. In their minds, they begin to grumble and complain. Verse 7 says, why does this man, this is the, the thoughts of the scribes, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? Here's the scribes begin to think in their minds like, wait, what? You can't, you can't say that. You don't have that authority. You don't have that ability. You don't have that power. There's only one person who has the power, and it's God alone. And so often we give the scribes a bad rap and, and the Pharisees, and we say, man, these guys are such jerks. They're so harsh towards Jesus and so harsh. Towards but here's the reality. They're absolutely right. They're absolutely right. No one has that ability. No one has that authority. There's no prophet. There's no priest. There's no king. There's no pastor who has the authority to forgive sins. And anybody who says they do is blaspheming against God because our sin is between, between us and God. God and God alone has the ability and the authority to forgive sins. And so what Jesus is doing in this moment is, little boy, is blasphemy unless, unless he's God. And so what Jesus is declaring in this moment this kind of brings me to, to the kind of the second piece of this, the second point, right? Is that only God and God alone has the authority over sin. Only the true king of all could hold this authority over sin. And Jesus once again is declaring that he is in fact the Messiah, the promised Savior King. This is exactly what's happening right here. He sees the faith of these boys and he is saying, and he has moved beyond healing them of what is temporary to healing them of that which is eternal. And in doing so, he's declaring who he is the king of all who holds authority over our sin, right? This is what Mark has been doing all along. He's been actually the whole first chapter is walking to this verse right here, to this story. Right? He's showing Jesus' authority over the demons. He's showing his authority over the illnesses. And now he's showing his authority over sin. And only God has authority over demons and sicknesses and sin. Right? Mark is opening our eyes to see who Jesus really is, that he is fully God, not God miniature, not God temporary, not, not God replica, not God pint-sized, fully God in all that God is. Here's how Paul puts it uh, in Colossians 1. If you love your Bible, you already know where we're going. Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth and under the earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. Does that sound like God Jr. to you? Does that sound like like some smaller version of God? No, only God could do that. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body as church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in him, that everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, only Jesus has the authority because Jesus is fully God. And so Jesus, the cure for the actual disease of the sin and the curse of sin, okay? It's an eternal curse. And so the eternal one, God alone, goes to the cross and he gives his life. So the eternal one loses his life so that you and I might find eternal life. That's the end of the curse. That's the end of the disease. Now, there's all kinds of symptoms of this disease, but the root of the disease, the bottom line, the cure, is Jesus' death on the cross. His blood covers us. When he bleeds the ground red, he is dying in your place. The death that he is dying is your death. It's my death. And the eternal one is dying so that... We, the temporary ones, might have eternal life. That's the cure for sin. That's the cure for the disease. We're no longer eternally separated from God because we have the blood of Christ covering us, washing over us. He's imputed his righteousness to us. He's given us his righteousness as he took on our sin. That's the cure. And it had to be fully God in order for us to become cured. Now, Verse 8, back in Mark 2, verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, right? They're questioning, wait, you don't have the authority over this. As he perceives that, he says to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Why don't you think I have the authority? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know. I want you to know that I have the authority, that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and he went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This brings me to the last point, the last thing that I want you to understand, right? If you want that, right, not just the cure from the disease of sin, but the cure from the symptoms of sin, right? You've got to get in the room with Jesus, You've got to get in the room with Jesus. If you want what is being described here, you've got to get in the room with Jesus. So many of us in this room, most of us in the room, are paralyzed by our sin, right? Even though many of us have been freed from the actual disease, the effects of the disease are still all over our lives, are so riddling our bodies, and we're paralyzed by it. 
We're paralyzed by our sin. We are the ones on the mat who need the ability to walk. Our sin is paralyzed by us. And I don't know what it is for you, but maybe for you it's been years and years and years the same thing over and over, and you've tried to fight against it, you've tried to fight against it, and you just can't beat it. Maybe it's lust and pornography. Maybe, maybe for you it's drugs and alcohol. It's got you stuck on the mats of anxiety and depression, and you can't fight it, and you can't beat it, and you can't get up off the mat. Maybe for you it's the sin of religion. And you don't even know you're stuck on the mat. Like sometime in your life long ago, maybe when you were a kid, somebody said, hey, come follow this. Come be a part of what we're doing. This is amazing. We've got all these things. And all you have to do is just follow all the rules and do all the right things. And if you do all the right things and follow all the rules, and then you're in, then you can have all the things that Jesus offers. But remember the story. Does Jesus forgive the kid's sin because he did all the right things? No. No. And so you wake up one day and you realize, wait, none of this is true. This isn't right. But then you also realize this whole thing's a trap. And I'm stuck in this cage. And you realize that the bars of the cage are the people that you love. It's your family. It's your friends. It's your community. It's your career. It's your identity. And you're trapped inside of the cage of religion. And in order to break out, you've got to let them all down. And you can't do it. You can't do it. You wake up one day and you realize you're paralyzed and you didn't even know it. Maybe it's your wealth. Maybe it's your career. You've given, you've given everything you have, everything you can to earn that status, to earn that title at work, or to earn that amount of money, right? And you just keep feeding the machine. And the more you have, the more you want, and the more you want, the more you work, and the more you work, the more you get, and the more you get, the more you want. And you are paralyzed by it. And you can't get up. And you don't know what to do. You're stuck on the mat. Here's the thing, man. Jesus didn't just die on the cross to, for, to, to cure you of the disease and then leave you on the mat. That's not who he is. And the story is declaring that. He wants to do more in your life. The same God who has saved you wants to be the God who transforms you. And so that you may know that he has the authority over sins. Jesus first forgives our sins. But so that you may know, he also heals our lives. The Spirit of Christ is active in our lives. He lives living, restoring areas of brokenness. In the areas we once limped, we who are in Christ can now be set free to run. The Holy Spirit is available to us to rid our lives of the paralysis of sin. Sin in our marriage, sin in our parenting, sin in our friendships. Envy and greed and lust. He wants to do a healing work in you. The Spirit of Christ takes a residence inside of us and helps us to put off the old, all of the dead old self that was killed by the work of sin and put on the new that is in Christ. He wants to do a work in you. He wants to get you up off the mat. He wants to restore areas in your life that have been broken and put out of place. I want to leave you with a quote, one more quote from John Owen, and it's my favorite one because it's crazy. Here's what he says, as only a Puritan preacher can say. He, Jesus, can make the dry, parched ground of my soul. And maybe in my, you just need to put your name. Jesus, only Jesus, can make the dry, parched ground of Josh's soul to become a pool and Josh's thirsty, barren heart, 
as springs of water. Yes, he can make this habitation of dragons, this heart, my heart, which is so full of abominable lust and fiery temptations, to be a place of bounty and fruitfulness unto himself. Only Jesus can do that. Only he has the authority to do that. And oh, church, how we need him. We need him every day. We need him every hour. We need him every moment. We need Jesus. He is the one and the only one who can cure this terrible disease that we have and who can bring restoration and healing to all of the effects that this disease has brought into our lives, all all of the ailments and the conditions of this disease, the symptoms of it. Only Jesus can strengthen our weakened hearts every day. Only Jesus can can lift up and, and, and straighten our bent marriages. Only Jesus can restore our broken and fractured identities that we are so afraid to let anybody know that are broken and fractured. Only Jesus can call us to get up off the mat of our sin and walk with him in a newness of life, a flourishing life. And this story communicates that he wants to do both. He wants to save you from the eternal cost of sin by the blood of his cross, but he also wants to free you from all of the effects of that sin in your life right now. He wants to call you up off the mat. And the reality is that there's no one, there is no one in this room, there's nobody in this room, there's nobody in your life that has that authority. No one can do that for you. I can't do that for you. There's no pastor that can do that for you. There's no prophet that can do that for you. There's nobody that can do that for you. Only Jesus can do that. But what we can do is we can help you dig a hole through the roof. And that's what we need to do for each other. We need to be a people who are constantly trying to get each other in the room with Jesus. You've got to be in the room with Jesus. Every day you've got to be in the room with Jesus. You've got to be a person who loves to get in the Word and get into prayer and get into meditation. You've got to get in the room with Jesus. And this morning, what I want to do as we kind of close out this time, if you would say, man, that's, I, I just, I've got to get up off the mat, and I don't know how to get off the mat. I can't get you up off the mat. But if that's you, I mean, the band's going to come out. They're gonna, we're going to sing one more song together. We're going we're gonna to celebrate all that God is doing. But if that's you, you say, man, I need help. Some of our lead shepherds, our elders, are going to be down here in front. I'm going to be right here. And I don't have the authority. I can't, I can't rid your life of sin but I can help you dig a hole in the roof. And I'd love, we would love to just pray over you to get you in the room with Jesus and allow him to begin to do that work in your life this morning. And so if you would say, man, I I need prayer. Maybe this morning you said, man, I've never been cured from the actual disease. I've never given my life to Jesus. And this morning, maybe today is the day. Don't leave. You, You have the worst disease ever. You can't leave. The cure is right here. It's in the room. you got to get in the room with Jesus. Maybe this morning you say, I've, I've been cured. I've given my life to Jesus. I know that I'm saved. I know that I've been redeemed. But I still have the effects of sin in my life. And I can't. I'm paralyzed. Maybe you just got some sin that you need to confess this morning. Man, we'd love to start digging a hole through the roof with you this morning. It would be an honor to be able to pray with you this morning. We'll be right down here. Let me pray for you right now.
And you can come down front at any point in time. And we'll pray for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning. We confess, we confess that we have buried our sin. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to engage in it. We don't want, to, we don't want anybody to know. We've buried the sin of the people sitting around us. I don't want to think about their sin. And yet we are all living lives that are scarred by the symptoms of the disease. Some of us are still living fully with the disease. Would you give us a faith that fights to be in the room with you? Would you remind us of who we are apart from you? That you and you alone have the authority to forgive us and to heal us. And that we've got to get in the room with you every single day. So help us to be a people who fight to be in the room with the King of all. Pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand. Let's sing one last song together. And then if you need prayer, come on down. We'd love to pray with you.